Thank you all very much. Thank you for leading us to worship. Oh, there is just so many things I'm looking forward to in the weeks ahead. Um, that the Lord will perform a miracle of transformation and unity and the restoration of health and body and soul and church and all of those things. Um, this morning I am just so grateful to, to be here to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. We've been kind of talking about it. We've been kind of moving into it a little bit over the last few weeks. We've been coming up on it. It's been uh, a subject of my reading of a small, groups, a small group that I'm in. We were finishing the book of John, so we were right in the midst of it um, as we were, re- we were wrapping up the last few weeks. Um, it's been part of my reading and my devotional time. I've been doing several different reading programs that are centered around the people and activities of the, this last week of Jesus' life. I remind you that today we are both literally in the sense of the timing of the week and figuratively as it relates to who we are and where we are in the track of time on the Sabbath. It is literally Sabbath. That's the day that Jesus was in the tomb resting, waiting for the time to pass that he might be resurrected on the first day of the week, waiting in the tomb to meet the minimum requirements of that famous statement that he gave them, that he would only give them the sign of Jonah as a representation of who he was. Figuratively, we are waiting in that period between resurrection and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection has happened. We rest in the reality of that resurrection. We rest in the reality that we have faith and trust in who Jesus is and that he's alive. And as we rest in that, this this Sabbath of rest that's been going on for 2,000 years, as we rest in that, we await the resurrection of the saved, the resurrection of those who have put their faith in Jesus. We are in the Sabbath figuratively as we wait the second coming of Jesus. So every time we come to this time of year, I want you to remember that that is where we are figuratively. We are resting in faith, in salvation provided to us by Jesus because of his grace. And as we do so, we look forward to the day when that final mark of earth's time, that final tick of the clock, when Jesus bursts through the sky and takes those who have trusted him for their salvation home. There are good things ahead. As we talk about the resurrection this morning, I want to remind you, um, I want to remind you ladies, you ladies have a great heritage in resurrection morning. You know, you have a great heritage in resurrection morning. You can look over your shoulder at the guys. You don't, don't give them too much attention to make them feel inferior. Just, you know, you can glance at them out of the corner of you. You know how you do. You know how when you've asked us to do something and we're not moving off the couch, how you give us that look where you don't turn your head. You just glance out of the corner of your eyes. You can just give them that. Give them that glance out of the corner of your eyes. Because the first person to arrive at the tomb was a lady. 
She got up early that morning. We talked about this a little bit. We touched on this a little bit last week. Mary had everything to lose if Jesus is still in that tomb. All of her heart that invested in this man, all of the, that, the forgiveness that was invested in her, all that she knew to be true about Jesus was at risk if he was still in that grave. But she still went with the intent to finish what it actually started which she had actually started with breaking open an alabaster box, pouring oil on his head, pouring it on his feet, wiping it with her hair. She goes early in the morning to continue the processing, to continue putting spices and oils and fragrances on Jesus. Early in the morning she arrives and the stone is rolled away. And she doesn't know where he is. Somewhere between her and the arrival of the other disciples, some other women show up. Some of the other women of the group show up. They roll in and they find the tomb also empty. They look inside and as, as was great, as was wonderfully demonstrated by Walter and Carlene. Don't you think Walter's a little bit of an effigy? Not sure it's complimentary. But we'll leave it there. Walter and Carlene shared with us this morning that some other women arrived there and they find two angels sitting there. Where Jesus' body was are now two angels. There's an interesting description in Luke's Gospel in chapter 24. As he talks about this arrival, he simply says what's on the screen up there. He says, the angel said to them, why do you search for the living among the dead? It's a statement that calls for faith, isn't it? To search for the living among the dead, to search for the living because he's alive, to believe that he's living while you're standing there in his tomb, to believe that he's alive because his body is gone, requires a bit of faith. Why do you search for the living among the dead? I think for some people, some people in our world are stuck right there. They're still searching for the relationship that will transform their lives among the, 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 the heart's, heart's truth. Not, their, not necessarily their spoken truth, but something in their mind, something in their heart has not yet truly accepted that the Messiah is risen. Why do they search for the transformative power of a relationship with a living God among the antiques of the dead? Some folks go to an antique dead church in their mind. They think of their church as not alive. They don't look around and recognize that as long as there's another human being in that building, it's alive. As long as there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move, any church anywhere is still alive. There is no such thing as a dead church that has live people in it. And I know some of you are kind of in your mind shaking your heads. Nobody's shaking your heads and bless you for not shaking your head right now in front of me. But I'm telling you, as long as the Holy Spirit is active and as long as people are still available to the Holy Spirit, there's an opportunity for every church to be beaming with life. Some folks are looking for the living among the replicas of Christ that they've made themselves. You know what I mean? That Jesus that they have that is manipulable. You know what I'm talking about? If I can make Jesus what I want, he's not God. 
If I can manipulate God's behavior in any way, if I am able to make God do what I want, he's not God, I am, right? And I've made him into a statue. I've made him into an image of my creation. If I can, if I can make God, then he is not God. And it is as true as if you had a little statue sitting in your, in your kitchen on your table that if you're in charge of your salvation, God is not God. The resurrection is a demonstration of the validity of who Jesus is. Why do you search for the living among the dead? Today I would like to call you, to challenge you, to accept at your core that He is risen. And if He is risen, it has to change everything. If He is alive, it has to change every other fact. So today I want to just talk to you a little bit about it. But I want to give you this, a couple of, a couple of pictures. We've lived through a year that I'd like to just skip. We've lived through a year that I think I, I, I really like the way this little figure, oh, well, well, that didn't work, guys. I might need your help. Not really sure why that happened that way. Well, I can't see you enough to know if I need to be waved at. Do you wish you could do this? Just push the reset button and sort of reset the whole world. Just kind of walk up to the little green button and push it. You know, you can, you can find reset hacks for almost anything. I went online and I just entered reset images. I got all of the little buttons that you can't find on the backs of phones and on backs of other devices that you can stick a pin in or a pen in and make your thing reset. Hold this button for three seconds and your whatever will reset. Hold this button down for ten seconds and your things will reset. And they were, they were showing me where all these little buttons are hidden. I want a big giant red button. I want one that looks more like this. I want an easy to find reset button. Reset the globe. Crazy thing happened in back in May, June. We were just three months into the whole crazy pandemic thing getting started. We, I was still thinking it'd be over by August. Tim was still telling me not a chance. Tim wins again. Should trust that guy more. Really, should, especially when he's being pessimistic. There's a whole movement started last June called the Global Reset. That's creepy. If there's a Revelation 13 thing about to happen, it's these guys who are running it. They literally, they, when they saw this, they sat out a whole, set a whole structure of things, like 40 things they want to change called the Global Reset. This is a scary bunch of folks, but don't worry about them. We'll t- I'll tell you about them when we get to Revelation 13 sometime this year. I'll tell you all about how scary this group is. But I just want this giant reset button set right across North America. Bam! Let me reset this thing. I want to say the same thing to you if your, social, if your spiritual life has kind of hit the depths of the valley during this period. If your spiritual life is kind of tanked, isolation has done it, 
COVID has done it, the, the, the count after count after count after count after count of global pandemic results has done it, uh, whatever has done it, if, you're, if your spiritual life has kind of tanked, I want you to take this celebration of the resurrection as an opportunity to reset it, to punch the button and say, say fact number one, Reset fact number one, Jesus is alive. He emerged from the tomb, stone rolled away, angels in his place, and he began to chat with folks. He talks to Mary. Peter and John come booking it to the tomb. They look inside. John believes there's a miracle here. Peter's not so sure. The other ladies show up, they go into the tomb, and there's two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, and they say to them, why do you search for the living among the dead? Mary comes back, Jesus shows up there to Mary, she thinks he's a gardener, she says, where have you laid him? He says, Mary, and as soon as he says it, she knows it's Jesus. She falls down at his feet in my image of what happens next because the Bible doesn't say. But I imagine she fell at his feet. That's what I think you would do in worship at that moment. Grabs him around the legs. I know she's holding on to him because he tells her to let him go. Let go of me. Like that four-year-old who's riding along. I have not yet ascended to my father. Ladies. Not only are you the first ones to see him, you're the first ones to touch the risen Jesus. I love, I love that Mary Magdalene, the person on the lowest rung among the followers of Jesus, cast out seven demons. That's pretty bad demonic possession. She was in the prostitution business. That'll put you pretty low in the ranks. She's a female. That already put her down the ladder. Here she is among this group of folks. She gets to see Jesus first. So cool. The restoration of the relationship that becomes factual. Because the cross of Jesus reset the wages of sin. So whatever happened before Jesus in Mary's life doesn't matter now. Whatever happened in my life before Jesus doesn't matter anymore. Whatever happened in your life before Jesus doesn't matter anymore. Do you believe it? Do you know it for sure? Or do you pull out your list of sins once in a while and give them a read? Do you sometimes pull out that one you think, oh, I don't know if that one, I don't know if that one could, could really be covered by the blood of the Lamb. The fact of the resurrection is the fact for Mary and it's the fact for you and it's the fact for me. Sin is not our problem anymore. 
faith is our only pursuit. He's risen. Does it change things for us? Do we believe it? Is it true? Do we act like it? Mary Magdalene's life changes because the wages of sin have changed because Jesus hit that reset button. He said, after this, wages of sin are paid for. You don't have to slaughter lambs anymore. When Jesus died, do you remember, do you remember what happened? This, this tremendous statement. It was this, this public, effective statement. When Jesus dies, as Jesus breathes his last, the Bible records that as Jesus says it is finished, the veil of the temple is torn in two, ripped from the top to the bottom without anyone touching it. And the, the priest who is ready to, to kill the Passover lamb, for whatever reason, the, the earth shaking under his feet because of the earthquake, whatever reason, the, the knife slips and the lamb escapes. Why? Because God has said the lamb is no longer necessary. The lamb of God has taken its place. John's prediction, there goes the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, meets its answer in Jesus. The description of man sacrificing animals, which apparently starts even in the garden, that ancient description of sacrificial systems, that ancient description that there will be a day when there will be a substitute for you. And this animal is to remind you of that upcoming substitute. The day has met its end. Type has met its antitype. This is no longer necessary. Animals don't need to pay a sacrificial representative blood spilling event. God did. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. From the resurrection to the moment on to eternity, your sins and mine are gone. I don't know if there's anybody doing it, but I know... A few years ago, I was talking to one of my neighbors about, about God. He brought it up. It's usually the best way to talk to your neighbor about God is when they bring it up. People know I'm a preacher, so they're, they're both nervous and more likely to bring it up. And so my, uh, my, my neighbor says to me, I'm thinking about going to your church. Okay. You don't have one of those namby-pamby churches about grace and everybody's sins being forgiven and covered, do you? Would you not have a namby-pamby church? I didn't answer any more of the question. Because of course we have a church that believes in the forgiveness of sins and the covering of God's grace. Because we believe what the Bible says, and that's what the Bible teaches. You don't go to a church that takes the sacrifice of Jesus lightly. 
This is not saying that Jesus just showed up one day and said, hey, hey, I'll spill a little blood, we'll get rid of this and we'll go on our way. This is the ultimate sacrifice. This is heaven emptying the vault so that you and I might be saved. The wages of sin paid. Paid in full. The resurrection is the proof of the promise. You get it? Centuries before the first lamb gets sacrificed. My belief, there's no way to prove this scripturally. My belief is that somewhere in the garden, probably when God made the clothes for Adam and Eve, that God began a process of explaining that there would be a sacrifice that would be made, that would be represented by this lamb, that God would make the sacrifice. But right now I want you to know that sin costs death. The wages of sin is death, Adam. The wages of sin is death, Eve. This is what death looks like. Take this, this sharp knife. Dispatch this animal. That's what sin costs. I'll take that punishment for you. But that's what it costs. And he makes skins, clothes, hide clothing for them out of it. That's when I think the first one happened. Where do you get the hide? I know God can make hides out of air, but there's a great opportunity here to show them the cost. Maybe that's why. We know that by Cain and Abel's time, it's clear. We know that as the Bible goes down through history, you get stories about it. You have Noah sacrificing animals as he comes out of the out of the ark. You have really Abraham bringing this clear. Everywhere Abraham goes, he, he travels, he builds an altar, he travels, he builds an altar, he travels, he builds an altar. Altars dot Abraham's life. What, what a historical landmark for your life. And each of those sacrifices was a reminder of a promise. And the resurrection is the proof of the promise. The tomb is empty. He's alive. Debt is paid. Jesus said it in this way, I laid down my life that I might take it up again. I want to I remind you of a couple of things. I laid down my life. Jesus is telling us in this passage, he is not being killed by God. There's a heresy out there that, that Jesus is some kind of a sacrifice that God makes. That God requires him, he's going to kill him himself, he's going to just do this, and Jesus is some kind of a weird puppet who gets killed by God. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I laid down my life that I might take it up again. And if I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus is saying, I am doing this. I am choosing this. I have promised this. You can't separate the members of the Godhead like that. If Jesus is some sort of created being, he's just... Another human 
sacrifice. But if in fact he is God and he lays down his life with the authority to take it back up, everything is different. I lay down my life that I might take it up again. I made a promise. I'm fulfilling my promise. The tomb is empty because the promise is fulfilled. The debt is paid. Your debt. My debt. Paid in full. Paid in full. The resurrection is therefore proof that Jesus is God. You buy it? The resurrection is therefore proof that Jesus is God. Remember John 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If Jesus is the sacrifice of a human being, there's no resurrecting Him without the actions of some outside force. Jesus said He had the authority to do this. And He did it. Because He was not just a human being. He was God in human flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3, Jesus is the exact replica of God in human flesh. When you are looking at Jesus, you are looking at God. You really need to filter all of your reading of the Old Testament through that verse because you have a tendency, I have a tendency, humans have a tendency to separate Jesus from the Old Testament God. We have a tendency to say, Jesus, good guy, nice guy, loving, caring, wonderful guy, Old Testament God, some other mean guy. Not true. Not true. Same God. Same God. The resurrection of Jesus under whatever crazy, wild authority God has in that space is proof that He is in fact God. And that is pretty good news for the church. That is pretty good news for the church. It is pretty good news for the world because there's a way off this rock. Because Jesus has made a way where we could not make a way for ourselves. The resurrection is proof of the promise that the grave is not the end. For you. The resurrection is proof that the grave is not the end for you. It's not the end for your loved ones. It's not the end for anyone who chooses to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not the end for anyone who chooses to believe that the sacrifice was made on their behalf. It's not the end for any end for anyone who says, I don't want to follow my sins anymore. I want to follow you. It has been the process of the promise from the beginning that God has said to people, look, I want you to, to change the way life is going for you. I want you to get in line behind me and follow me and I'll lead you home. That has been the promise of Christ all along. That has been the promise from the beginning, from the first sin. He will bruise your head, Satan. You will bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to only two human beings, God says, I will destroy the father of lies 
the one who initiated sin on the planet, the one who tricked you into following him. Just follow me. Just follow me. I realized this week, one of those devotionals I'm reading is about Peter. Thank you, Mike Peterson. Mike, Peter's son. The last thing Jesus says in John 22, the last thing recorded between Jesus and any of the disciples is as he's reinstating Peter. There's a little conversation about John, but as he's reinstating Peter, the last thing he says is what he said to him in the boat that day after the great haul of fish back at the beginning. He said, follow me. And the last thing he says when he reinstates him is follow me. What he said to Abraham when he took, took him out of Ur of, Talgis, Chal, Ur of the Chaldees, he said, I know life is good for you here. You've got inside plumbing. You've got water running into your house. You've got all kinds of awesome things here. But I want you to leave your home and follow me to a place that I will show you. It was just starting a relationship with God. All that is is a description of how a relationship with God starts. Just get up from where you are and follow me. Repent means just to get up and go God's direction. It's just changing the direction of your life, just going in His direction. Wherever that direction might be, you're going this way. He says, let's go that way. You get up and you follow. That's all that it is. And you, as you walk behind Him, as you follow behind Him, the promise builds and the promise builds and your faith builds and it gets stronger. Remember the process. Faith grows. Faith grows as you obey. Faith grows. Faith grows as you obey. He says, try this, you try it, and your faith grows. Try this, you try it, and your faith grows. Try this, you blow it, and you go, uh-oh. And your faith shrinks and you try it and you, and you succeed and your faith grows. You see, the, the secret about this obedience thing is that it transforms you. It doesn't transform God. He accepted you when He gave His life for you. And when you accepted that, He promised you home and He's walking you that way. In the process, He's trying to strengthen your faith in Him, trying to get you to trust Him more. And so He he says, jump over this. And you go, that's easy. Okay, over you go. Okay, let me raise the bar a little bit for you. Try that and you go over it and you go, wow, that was that was a little harder, but that was good. And he raises the bar beyond your capacity. This is usually how it ends up after you've been following God for a little. He raises the bar beyond your capacity. You say, God, I've been along with this with you all this time, but that's more than I can do. And he says, but I can. Go ahead and try it. And you try it. And with his help, you get over it and your faith grows. So that's the call. The covering of his grace is not absence of transformation. The covering of his grace is the process of transformation. It's what affords you the mistakes that you will make during the transformation. Follow me and I'll lead you home. Just follow me. Come on. Repent means change your direction. Come after me. Just follow me. I'll get you there. Abraham wanders through the desert. He wanders around. He wanders around. He wanders around. He keeps asking questioning God, saying, I don't have any kids. How is this promise going to be fulfilled? I don't have any kids. How is this promise going to be? And God shows him, and he says, I trust you. And then he asks again, and he says, I'll show you. And he trusts him, and he asks again, and he says, I'll show you. And he trusts him, and each time he trusts him, that trust is a reassurance to, to Abraham that his faith can still be placed even though he struggles with his doubts, and that's still true for you and for me. And so long as your faith is in Him, even as you are walking through it and you're making some days and you're failing some days, so long as you're connected in it, you are covered always through the process. 
and the grave is not the end. I don't, I don't want for anyone to not get it. The covering of God's grace is sure. The challenge of God to grow you is also sure. But you shouldn't be afraid of it. It's empowered by Him, not by me, not by you. It's empowered by Him entirely. And in the following death is gone as a fear for you. You don't ever have to worry about it. You don't ever have to be fearful of it. Paul put it in this way. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how messy it gets for me, God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all is still for us. The resurrection is the assurance of the promise that God is on your side in the process. He's trying to get his children home. He's trying to get them home. For by grace, that covering of God's grace, you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I've talked to you about this a few times, maybe a few hundred. If this is your life before Jesus, and this is when you encounter Jesus, there is sin in your life that needs to be taken care of. And he says, if you will turn and follow me, I will take all that on. And he, he's swallowed up in the wages that he paid you don't have to think about. In his death you were covered. His gift is given to you. The blood, the sacrifice of the cross, the the promise of the resurrection is handed over to you. In the moment you say, God, I am not very strong and I am not very good and I'm not very capable and I'm really shaky about this and I know that I'm shaky and I know that I'm problematic and I know I'm a sinner, but if you'll take me, I'll go. He says, good, done, I'll take it. And his covering of his grace. You know how life is because the day after we accept Jesus, we're still facing sin, right? And you have life to live from there to whenever that ends where Jesus comes. And you know that that's going to be speckled and decorated with our sins. We'll make progress and we'll fall back and we'll make progress and we'll fall back and we'll make progress and we'll fall back. No, many, no matter how many times you find your face, yourself on your face having fallen again, His grace is still your covering. We are saved by the covering of His death. And much more, according to Romans chapter 5, much more after having been reconciled to God through the death of His Son, we are saved by His life. The life spent for you. The life invested for you. The record recorded for you. And the resurrection of that life. You needn't worry about God's part ever. When you are flat on your face, please be reminded that He knew about your worst day on the first day, and He's trying to get you home. 
The resurrection is the assurance, the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of his covering and his grace. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. But get this last line in the right context. It was a gift given to you 100% free because all gifts are 100% free. That grace is your covering through all of your life. From the time you accept Jesus to you die, it's covered. From the time you accepted Jesus to when you were born, it's covered. Your life is covered. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You open Revelation chapter 20, you read, and it says all who are found written in the Lamb's book of life are saved. Those who are not are lost, period. He wrote your names down. And he said, so long as you continue to follow me, you're in. You would have to decide not to follow me anymore. But don't, don't drop that last phrase in as your payment. Pay really close attention for 30 seconds. It is really easy to believe that this is not a gift, it's a payment plan. And that so long as I keep making my payments, I'll get saved. Jesus made the only necessary payment. What he is saying is as you continue to follow him, you will fulfill what you were created for. And you will be more like Jesus because you followed Jesus than you were when you weren't following Jesus. And anybody who's been following Jesus knows the truth of it in the practice of their own daily experience. If you're worried about this, if you're a brand new believer and you don't know how this is going to work, find somebody who's been doing it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and ask them how it's worked for them. The resurrection is the proof of the promises of God. One of the last things Jesus does before he breathes his last, he turns to a man desperate to have his horribly lived, messed up life covered. One of the last things Jesus does before he dies is turn to the desperate man next to him who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he doesn't give him a Bible study. He doesn't test his knowledge of what he's committing himself to. He accepts that his desire to be saved is faith and trust in him. And he says, if you will trust me, if, you, if that's your real desire, I promise you today, when both of us are going to die, I promise you today, when here we are, it looks like nothing is ever going to happen for us. I promise you today, when the odds are stacked against both of us, I promise you today 
You will be with me in paradise. And the resurrection is the proof of that promise. I paid the wages for your sin. Even the ones the Romans think are worthy of killing you. And my grace is sufficient for you. Looking around to the people around them, Jesus has nothing but compassion for those who are lost. Looking at the people who crucified him, he turns to the Father and says, don't hold this against them. They're ignorant of what they're doing. And the resurrection is the proof of that promise. The tomb is empty. He is risen. The resurrection is, in fact, the proof of the validity of the story. If there is no resurrection, this is a fairy tale. If the resurrection is real, if the tomb is empty because Jesus walked out under his own power by his own authority, if the resurrection is true, it has to change the way we see, we live, and we understand our lives. I would ask you to do one more thing today. Is put yourself in the picture. It's not a story about a person long ago. It's not a story about the thief on the cross. It's not a story about your great aunt Mabel. It's not a story about somebody else. Because as long as it's a story about somebody else, it doesn't transform the way we live. It doesn't transform the fear into faith. But if it's a story about you with your name in it, if it's true for you, if if you can put your name in the story, then the resurrected Jesus changes everything. So I'm going to ask you to put your name in the story. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. She went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. They've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Then Peter and the other disciple went to the tomb. The two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and saw the linen cloths, but he did not go in. Behind him came Simon Peter, and he went straight into the tomb.
He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the cloth which had been around Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloths, but was rolled up by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture, which said that he must rise from death. Then the disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was still crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb. And saw two angels there, dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? They asked her. They have taken my Lord away. And I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who was it that you were looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary. Father, we choose this morning to believe what you say about us. That we are your children. That we are redeemed that we are covered by your blood, given the promissory note of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of the resurrection of mankind in your own. That you say our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's all that matters. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the plan for our rescue. We trust the sacrifice of Jesus for us. We choose the forgiveness and cleansing of our lives from sin. We choose to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as you guide us. And we accept the gift of your grace. 